Hey everyone, this episode is an overview of St. Teresa of Avila, as well as some of her key thoughts, her biography, and what to know before we start diving into some of her premier writing. I hope you enjoy, and thank you for listening. Peace be with you and with your spirit. Welcome to another episode of St. Anthony's Tongue. I am your host, W. Today we will be talking about one of the most influential saints, I would say of all time, the doctor of the church who teaches us how to pray. We already talked about prayer a few episodes ago, but prayer is something today where we just think about ourselves falling on our knees and asking God for things. However, Teresa of Avila really showed us that prayer is a gateway to a deeper union with God. In a very fascinating figure, a woman in the 14th century who was given command by the Pope to travel and do these reforms, she was a very powerful woman, and yet she was also a very humble woman who knew and had this unique relationship with God. And even though was this really forward-thinking, really powerful saint, she still, at times, at times she could be very complex, but at times still she would describe God very simply. She would say contemplation is just a loving conversation with a friend, or contemplation is just a simple gaze between the soul and the soul's beloved. So although she has all of these very complex ways, or complex for me at least, She also has this element of divine simplicity that I think is very beautiful. All right, so let's jump into who she is and then a little bit more about how we can incorporate some of the ideals of Teresa into our own spirituality. All right, so she was born in Avila, Spain in 1515, and her parents were very wealthy. Her father was a successful wool merchant, and if you know your saints, this is kind of a common theme. St. Francis of Assisi, his parents were successful wool merchants. Catherine of Siena, her father was a successful wool dyer. Um, St. Benedict, he came from a wealthy family, though he left it to live in a cave. So you see a lot of this with the saints and the mystics. However, Teresa was a bit different because Francis almost resented his family and left, though On the other hand, Teresa had a great relationship with her family. In fact, she just chose to become a nun because she was afraid she was almost becoming a little too obsessed with the worldly things. She liked them a little too much. So you have St. Francis who gave it all up and ran away in the woods, but you have Teresa who was kind of like, I could see myself going down this path, so I'm just gonna enter the convent. As a child, she had a fairly normal childhood. Again, you have saints like Catherine of Siena, who had these mystical experiences at the age of eight, and you have many other saints like that. But Teresa had a fairly normal childhood and a fairly normal relationship with her parents, though, as I did explain or go over in my story, that is taken from some of her biographies, where she did want to trek off to 
fight for Spain in the Holy Land. That is a true story. Similarly, she does have this story in one of her biographies about how she used to want to pretend to be a hermit by building hermitages in her backyard. So she did have a draw towards the spirituality, but she was by no means a mystic like some of the other saints as a child. Her mother would die when she was just 11 years old, and this would strengthen her relationship with the Virgin Mary. Teresa would see the Virgin Mary as her spiritual mother. Her father was very influential in her life, so that was another element from the first story that is true, and she had a very close relationship with him, and he sent her off to go to school at an Augustinian convent, and she would eventually join the convent. And her father did have some issues with her becoming a nun at first, but she eventually did it. And she did go through the early stages of a novitiate, which was, was kind of pre-novitiate, basically seeing if she wanted to be an Augustinian nun. However, she would later choose the easygoing Carmelite order. And that's going to be kind of a pivotal part of her story. So Teresa had a few illnesses that persisted her whole life. And the first were neurological issues that stem from malaria, which may or may not have caused the second condition, which is what we would call epilepsy today. This is disputed by some, and I see why. Some people will write off bouts of ecstasy and rapture as they were an epileptic, though there are also stories and tales of before the rapture, an angel came and pierced her heart and things like that, which I don't think is very common in epilepsy. Uh, though she did have some conditions, though, and we do know that the malaria did cause issues with her hands and her feet and mobility issues and things like that. Regardless, though, during her bouts of illness, she would stay in bed and read works on contemplative prayer. Now, when we talk about contemplative prayer, a lot of people think of Teresa of Avila. We think of John of the Cross, who's her protege. Though contemplative prayer and meditation is something that traces back to the early church and the early church fathers. Who she was reading, there are a few European mystics in there, no major notable names though people in the line of the Cistercian mystics like Bernard of Clairvaux and things like that who spoke on contemplation. So she was laying in bed and she would read all of these books. And this is also similar to another saint we're going to talk about in the series, Ignatius of Loyola, who was also bedridden. That's how he found his path to sainthood as well. So she was reading all these books and that's when her zeal for contemplation started to occur. Also, she began to have a zeal for flesh mortification, which came in the form of fasting, or for her, even self-flagellation, which probably only worsened her condition. And I'm saving my larger thoughts on self-mortification or flesh mortification for my episode on Catherine of Siena. It's a little more intense with her. Though essentially, that is the act of denying the flesh to increase our thirst for God, or even participating in the pain of Christ in some ways. Traditionally, though, this was just fasting, or maybe instead of using a kneeler, you kneel on the bare hardwood. Though over the years, especially the late medieval period, it started to get a little uncomfortable for many saints. And even so, their confessors and people would say, hey, take it easy. Teresa was not as intense as some of the others, but she already had a pre-existing condition and her fasting and other bouts did probably add to this. 
At one time, she was so sick that she prayed to St. Joseph for his intercession, and she made a miraculous recovery. And we see this in the life of Teresa, how she would repay him, because later she would become a reformer and open up her own convents, and everyone she opened up was named after St. Joseph. She had a great devotion to Joseph. And she would later write about this illness, and when she wrote about it, she said she felt her soul growing through various stages, which is important for later, ultimately ending in glimpses of divine ecstasy. And her most notable bout of ecstasy that we know of is depicted in Bernini's statue, The Ecstasy of St. Teresa Sculpture. This is very known, well known, it's kind of an iconic image. And it shows, as I discussed in the first story, her heart being pierced by a spear. And this is called transverberation. And this is one of those things where we all know the stigmata and we all talk about the stigmata a lot. The stigmata is more dramatic, though the amount of saints from different time periods, from different parts of the world, who have had an experience of their heart being pierced in some way by an angel, by Christ himself, by Mary, it's a lot. And Teresa is one of the well, most well-known, largely due to her sculpture by Bernini. And I alluded to this in the story, though when it comes to Teresa, the ecstasy is what I'll call it, the transverberation, that was the most notable, but she did have experiences beforehand. She was having these bouts of small ecstasy, infused prayer is what she would later call it. And she was also hearing the voice of God. And she said that she would see angels and apparitions, but she would see it with her mind's eye, which I think is very fascinating. We think of mind's eye and we think of new age. We think of kind of a bastardization of Eastern mysticism, though there are a few saints who spoke of seeing things with their mind's eye. Bonaventure is another who predates Teresa. So she would have these visions in her mind's eye and her mind. And now that I'm saying that, the term mind's eye could have been a modern phrasing, though it was a mental apparition that she saw only in her mind. Though the angel appearing and piercing her heart was her first interaction with a physical being of sorts, which is also very notable. And the ecstasy, she had been practicing contemplation for more than 25 years before she really got to that stage. So that's another big thing with Teresa is she practiced, practiced, practiced. And I'm saying the word practice, and that is because I do not have a better word. She did. She sat in contemplation. I think practice makes us think a little bit too much about perfection, but she performed, she sat with God in, cont in contemplative prayer for over 25 years before she really had her first experience, which I think is also very notable. So that's kind of an overview of her and her mystical experiences, but let's go back. Let's go back and talk about her life as a reformer. So. She began to read up on contemplation. She started having some experiences within her mind that were still very profound. And this really enlightened a new zeal for her, a new passion, because she wanted to pray. She wanted to sit in contemplation. She really wanted to further this union. She felt her soul going to a new place and she wanted more and she wanted more and she wanted more. 
But when she would leave the her cell in the convent, she would see no structure. She would see an overly lax approach to God and visitors would come and go. And she said it seemed more like a social club than a convent. Therefore, Teresa would start her own order of Carmelites that would be more strict. Those were called the discalced Carmelites. Discalced means shoeless because they were known for wearing sandals rather than shoes. The later, the male Carmelites, St. John of the Cross, which was her protege, he would say no shoes, but then Teresa would say, okay, well, at least in the winter, wear shoes. So this trend of reform that was more focused on contemplation and mystical union, it started to catch on and eventually it would get papal approval. The Pope would send her throughout Spain or give her approval to go out through Spain and really start to reform these Carmelite orders. She would later tap a young monk, as I said, John of the Cross, to handle the men's reform. And it was during this travel that Teresa started writing to her sisters. And a lot of this was focused on how a Carmelite nun should live and how the convent should operate. That is kind of a large portion of what Teresa writes. And this is how, when it gets kind of tricky when we start reading her writing, because we'll see things, we'll read things like, if you want to find God, you should not have any friends. And people today are like, wait, what? But she was writing for cloistered contemplative nuns. Very different. But a lot of her writings were about how one should live their life. Though later, she would start writing on how to pray and on these mystical states of union. And this often came from St. John of the Cross, who would inquire Teresa for advice for his male orders too. And this led to two of her best known works. The first is called The Way of Perfection. And this was Teresa's book on how her religious orders should navigate prayer, as well as the life of a Carmelite. And here is where she introduces one of her most famous concepts, which is the four stages of prayer. I mentioned two of them in the mystical prayer episode, but essentially that is her analogy of watering a garden. And our different stages in advancement of contemplation are like the stages of watering a garden. The first is we draw up water from the well and we use all of our strength to go and dump it on the garden, then we go back. That is an early stage of the soul's advancement in prayer. Though contemplation, which is the final stage, is when God just reigns on it. It's up to God and God gives it to us. Now we can prepare for it. We can maybe dig trenches to make the water flow into the garden better, though ultimately it's up to God, but still it's a very nourishing rain. We might still need both. We might need to still go and get the water from the well, but ultimately rain will start coming more and nourish your garden. So that was a very successful piece of work throughout the Carmelite community and beyond. It started to catch on in other monasteries, though there were still questions, especially from St. John of the Cross again, who said, okay, this is great, but how do we know? How do we know where we are in this journey? If the ultimate goal is this contemplation that you speak of, how do I know what stage I'm in? So what Teresa would later do is she would write her best known work, which is called The Interior Castle. And this expands upon those four stages. So The Interior Castle, Catherine says that the soul is like a castle and at the center of the castle is God. And our journey 
and the way to move throughout that castle is contemplation and prayer. And here she builds upon those four stages by introducing seven stages. So this was her most premier seminal work that really caught most people's attention and it's her most famous today. And while it is, it's not very complex, it's a little, it's a, it's a lot, it's very detailed. I wouldn't say complex. She's much more approachable than her protege, John of the Cross, to me at least. It adds a lot though. So each of these, so previously it was water your garden, go to the well, but now it's, all right, the first castle, you are more likely to do this, you're less likely to do that, and then doing this will lead you to the next castle, and then these are the things you might see. It's a lot of detail. But the interior castle is her most well-known work, and that is one of the reasons why she's such a revered figure today. And not only today, but back then as well. Her books were very popular while she was alive. And then St. John of the Cross, who wrote from the stage of poetry, actually, all of his work is poetry. They really complement each other well. So both of their works were very popular, and they really set the tone for mysticism that has grown over the past couple of centuries. In the fall of 1582, she fell ill, once more, she was consistently falling ill, unfortunately, and ultimately she passed away on October 15th. Her last words were, My lord, it is time to move on. Well then, may your will be done. O oh, my lord and my spouse, the hour that I have longed for has come. It is time to meet one another. Nine months after her death, her body was found to be incorrupt, and relics of her body were taken and spread throughout Europe. In 1622, she was canonized a saint largely for her reforms and her writings, which were, as I said, popular by religious orders and beyond, as well as the laity. In 1970, she was the first woman to be declared a doctor of the church. If you're unfamiliar with, with what a doctor of the church means, essentially doctor means teacher, educator, and there aren't many, there's less than 100 at this point. So that is just the church's institutional way of elevating a saint due to their teachings. So 1970, she became the first woman to become a doctor of the church. And a lot of the doctors will have their own specialty, and Teresa of Avila was declared the doctor of prayer, which again, that puts even more credence into mysticism to all Christians. So again, we think of prayer, we think of just asking for things, we think of mysticism as something only for the saints, though the church declared her and her work on prayer as something all Catholics, at least all Christians, should approach. And they should, because it's very, very rich in mysticism. A few other things from her life. She also had a very big devotion to the child Jesus. Her religious name was actually Teresa of the Child Jesus. And there's this story from her biography where she speaks of her going to start this new convent, this new monastery, and as she's walking down the steps, she sees a small child, and she says, Who are you? And the small child said, Who are you? And Teresa said, I'm Teresa of the Child Jesus. And the child says, I am the Child Jesus of Teresa to an apparition of the Christ child. She is also 
the first recorded instance of someone using holy water to defeat the demonic and evil, which I find really fascinating because as a woman, especially a woman back then, she didn't have the right to bless her own holy water in the sacramental way. So for her to really big, be a big proponent of using it is fascinating. And of course, the it's synonymous now with holy water fighting evil in pop culture and beyond. And it all started with Teresa of Avila from some of her writings in which she said, holy water, nothing works better than dispelling evil than using holy water. All right, so let's say we want to incorporate St. Teresa of Avila more within our prayer life. What else should we know? Her feast day is October 15th, and as far as her patronages, the patron of the sick, those with chronic illness, those interested in mysticism, as well as people ridiculed for their piety or people ridiculed for their interest in mysticism. If I were to do a novena to Teresa of Avila, what would it look like? I would likely decorate my altar very simply, maybe get my hands on some kind of Carmelite cross, decorate it with her prayer cards. Though for me, and this is probably going to be the thing I say for most mystics, is throughout those nine days, just sit and read some of her writings. Sit and read her autobiography. Sit and read The Interior Castle. To me, that is the best way to connect with these mystics, but also any saint who has written a book. It's a beautiful thing to sit in a novena for nine days and just read their work. So what are some other things to know about Teresa if you really want to get into her work? The first, and I've said it again, but it bears repeating, she was a 15th century nun writing for other 15th century nuns. So keep that in mind. What you are reading is intended for an audience of cloistered 15th century nuns. Cloistered means they don't leave the grounds of the convent. So when you read our stuff, as I said earlier, there's a lot of harsh lines about not having friends, detachment. But remember, it's because their goal was to live in contem contemplative communities th their whole lives. That was their jobs. So keep that in mind. If you come across something that seems a little weird, a little extreme, just remember she's writing for that audience. Though I will say most of the commentary on her work does include those caveats. There's a lot of works out there that approach her for the laity. And largely though, I'm saying this, but I'm also going to say that her work, Interior Castle, it discusses how that's pretty approachable for everyone. And it's the stages we all go through. You're really going to get into this when you read some of her earlier works that have sections on the Carmelite life. The works on mysticism, the ones I've read at least, I will say you don't really have the extremes. You just have the stages of the soul, the stages of prayer, things like that, which are universally approachable. And I will also say this next point, it probably comes from the fact that she was in the 15th century. Everyone had a spiritual advisor back then if you were in the convent. You had a spiritual advisor that you go to. Today, we don't really have spiritual advisors in regards to mysticism or contemplation as a layperson. If you are a Catholic, then hope maybe you might have a contemplative priest. I find that to be rare. And contemplation and mysticism isn't really taught that much in seminary. So back then, in her day and age, you would have someone to go to to talk about your progress in contemplation. A lot of their spiritual advisors was St. John of the Cross. 
So we do not have spiritual advisors, and we definitely don't have St. John of the Cross as one. So because of that, we might read her writing and we might think that the stages that she talks about are very concrete because she talks about stages a lot. A lot of her work is the stages of, of the soul, how we go through these pathways, so on and so forth. But we have to remember that people will read that and then they'll go and share it to their spiritual advisor, their spiritual director. We probably don't really have that. So you have to also keep in mind, and she does say this in her writings, that although she talks about stages of the soul and our path to union, so on and so forth, she even mentions that we can't be obsessed or too attached to the stages and they're blurry and we can be in two stages at once sometimes. So as you read some of her work, which we're going to get into on the stages of the soul and the stages of prayer, it's important that we understand that it's less about where we are and being obsessed with the stage, and it's more about the fact that we're doing it, that we're actually approaching the prayer and following the Holy Spirit within us. All right, so I think that is a pretty good overview and intro to the great Teresa of Avila. Be sure to tune in next week as we jump into the interior castle by St. Teresa, where we're going to talk about how she defines the stages of the soul and our journey into the arms of God. Thank you for listening, and St. Teresa of Avila, pray for us. <laughs>